0: Just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at SidebarForever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. To consider writer Alan Moore to be the greatest of all time isn't exactly a hot take, but is it true? Moore's impact on comics is undeniable. He's had multiple peaks across his career timeline, and even though he hasn't made very many comics in all the last 10 years, if you look back at his CV, he remains utterly peerless. Marvel Man, V for Vendetta, Swamp Thing, Watchmen, Batman The Killing Joke, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and not to mention his work on Spawn, as well as writing Jim Lee's Wildcats and creating America's Best Comics under the Wildstorm imprint. What is it about Moore's ideas and writing that resonates so deeply with comic fans? Who are some of the writers who have followed in his narrative footsteps? And what if Alan Moore had been born 20 years earlier, and got the chance to collaborate with the likes of a Steve Ditko and Alex Toth, a Neil Adams, or Bernie Wrightson. Hmm. I'm Adrian Johnson. Swain has asked for his name to be removed from this episode. He wants no part of it. Me? I'll take the check on the topic we're calling If Alan Moore Ain't the Goat, Nobody Is.
1: Yourself being younger than I am and coming into comics in the Mm nineties,
0: what
1: was the, what was the first Alan Moore thing that you read and were like, Oh wow.
0: Hmm. Well, I can tell you off, off, off rip, you know, when I first got into comics, it was almost thrust upon you, even in such a place as wizard, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Which is why I got all my comic (laughs) news. Right. Even in there, (laughs) you would still get a smattering of, Hey, Alan Moore, Alan Moore, Alan Moore. This guy is the guy. You know what I'm saying? So they would always recommend stuff like Watchmen, uh, V for Vendetta, even in those pages, you know? But being that it was in the early 90s, this would have been like 93, 94 when I was starting to get into it. This is around the time that Moore was actually starting to write a lot for Image. You know what I'm saying? So, Mm -hmm. Outside of the stuff that was recommended that you should read, you know, I was reading, you know, like that issue that he did of Spawn, like Spawn number eight. I think that I don't think that was the first thing I read of Alan Moore, but it might have been amongst the first that I can truly recall. Like, oh, okay, this is that guy they were talking about in the magazine. Got you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll make an admission as well. This will show my age and my mentality at the time. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> you probably know exactly what I'm about to say. Okay, okay. So <laughs> when I first got Watchmen, I was like, oh, okay, they keep recommending it. And at the time, I was like maybe 15. So this would be been 95. You know what I'm saying? So like, okay, I'm finally going to go ahead and I'm going to get this Watchmen paperback. Fine. Okay. Man. I read through that. It, it didn't hit me. It really didn't. I was like, huh? God. I was like, man, this is boring. What the hell? What? What? What?
1: <laughs> and then, like, I read
0: V for Vendetta. I was like, what? This don't even... Well, no, man. No, man. This ain't no. Like, it, it just wasn't hitting. You know what I'm saying? But it, it took me... um Actually, a couple more years, maybe well, I obviously <laughs> had to mature, but, you know, it wasn't until like I was 18 or 19 where I was like, ah, ah, now it's hitting. Yeah, yeah, now I can appreciate what he's doing. And I think that correlates with me also getting more involved with, you know, comics as well and having a ever burgeoning birth of books to have read from and say, ah, OK, OK, now I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and and also probably, too, coming in and during the 90s, coming in during that image era, quote image era. Yeah. And then probably as you got a little older is when you started doing more reading, like going into back issues and things from the 80s and, and even perhaps the 70s.
0: That's right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To call him the GOAT, and, and really... If I'm to be honest, I think the whole idea of calling Alan Moore the goat goes back to Jason Wood at that uh sh- at that uh, Heroes Con.
0: That sounds like some Wood would say. Woodrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Woodrow, yo. Jason <laughs> Wood, uh, uh, I recorded just real like kind of quick and dirty a, uh, a podcast. And it was him and, and some other folks. And we were all in a room together. That's right. And he made mention. He said, yeah, I would consider Alan Moore to be the goat. And he said he would stand by that.
0: Yeah, and uh, and, and he went unchallenged. Because <laughs> nobody, <laughs> you know? said everybody was up there, lead to the side like, coughing. <clears throat> right? Yeah. Uh, uh-uh, uh, uh-uh. you know." I can't say no. It, it, it wasn't one of those like you know in a wedding where they
1: say if anybody has you know reason to, you know, disagree with this union. Nah, nobody had a word to say. <laughs> it, it was crickets. <laughs> uh, it was crickets, but yeah, but you know, he's considered a hippie weirdo, and that's
0: true. you know i mean
1: it is what
0: (laughs) dang yo how you really feel
1: (laughs) well i mean he is he is he believes in magic you know (laughs) you know and he's been called like a crank and a grump and those things are kind of true too but you know alongside that he is also and i mean it's you know these words get thrown around a lot it's it's very very rare in a very exclusive group where you could actually say creative genius.
0: Certainly. Oh, yeah.
1: And I think you have to say that with him. You know, he's he's an innovator. He is a man of principle to 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 great extent,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you
1: know, and and he is the most literate and provocative comic book writer ever.
0: Yes. And, and, and if I could also add, you know, I think even at the base of all of that, you know, speaking of literature, you know, he also really has a love of language, of the written word. And and that's coupled with, you know, underneath all of, you know, the being being noted as a crank and everything as the years have progressed. He still had at that time a love for just an underlying love for comics, for the graphic medium you know, graphic storytelling Mm -hmm. and you can sense that in the choices that he made of the type of books that he would write, you know, as we'll probably talk about later in the episode, when you look at his entire bibliography, it's very expansive. You know, he wrote some of everything and he just gave it that touch of, you know, um, literacy coupled with that love of, you know, uh, graphic storytelling and brought it together to make something truly special. You know what I'm saying? So, word, yeah, definitely agree with you on that.
1: Yeah, man, and and uh, to 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 buttress that, um, there's a quote from Howard Chaykin, and, and he says, simply put, quote, simply put, Alan Moore is the best writer American comic books have ever had since Harvey Kurtzman, mm-hmm. and since, in my opinion, Harvey was the best writer comics have ever seen. That's high praise. Hmm. And, and and I think that prior to, probably prior to like Watchmen, probably prior to, you know, some of the other stuff that he did, a Swamp Thing. Yeah. You like the thing that I was the most blown away by as as a as a as a as a, as a whole story, was probably Mouse.
0: Ah okay, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean? That was the one thing where I re- that and maybe a contract with God, where I was like, wow, comics really can be. Something more than, you know, just four color uh, teenage boys power fantasies and, you know, uh, ridiculous team ups and, and <laughs> you know, and, you know, and all the things that 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 made the comics of the 70s and 80s great and fun. Yeah. And and a joy ride that, and the joy ride that they were. But, you know, it could really be something. More than that, and not more than that, like above it, but more than that, like you can do more with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: In in that in that sense, but so the goat, the greatest of all time. I was thinking about this. Yeah. And I think it's always fun to kind of talk about these things and to debate them. Not that you and I are going to debate them, because I think we're we're in concert as far as our our you know our opinion of more as as the greatest of all time. Sure. Yeah. But I think one one easy way to Cause you need like an operational definition. You need like something to compare it to. And you know, if you start, if you only stay within comics or, you know, comic related things, then it, it's kind of hard to say. Oh, what about Jack Kirby or what about this person or what about you know that person? And certainly, you know, Kirby and Stan Lee, you know, being you know the forerunners to you know to what we all have now, but, um, or the innovators, you know, to what we all have now. Mm-hmm. But um. I was thinking about more like Muhammad Ali.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, he's known as the greatest. He was known as the greatest while he was alive in the same way that Moore is. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the thing about it is, is, you know, he was excellent at his craft, Mm -hmm. was recognized, you know, for his excellence. There were many, many boxers that came after Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, who followed in his footsteps, who took things that he did. And tried to be like him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, he had acolytes. He had followers. Um, you know, he had an impact outside of his industry. You know, and then also Muhammad Ali had like Moore. He had multiple peaks on his timeline. You know, he uh, he you know he had a, a rise here, and then he you know he kind of went down a little bit. Then he had a second rise, and then like a third rise. And also like Ali, you know, Ali was a man of principle, and Moore is is a man of principle. Yeah, you know, he's a person. Who, you know, who says, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong. Now, granted, you know, everybody's somebody's asshole, you know, and we can all find things, you know, to fault him. But that would be the comparison that I would make in that, you know, Moore has done undeniably great work, has been recognized for it. You know, he is adored by his peers. yeah, And by those he has, you know, he has followers and he has people who have, you know, who have who uh, have followed in his footsteps people who point to him as an influence even if you can't see it directly in their work you know um he's had those multiple peaks on his on his career timeline yeah you know where you're like well by the time you get to extraordinary Gentlemen, you're thinking okay he can't be doing it again and he's like yeah my fuck i'm doing it again (laughs) you know what i mean yeah yeah and and, you know, in terms of his his principle, I mean, you know, he was so done with, you know, with, with DC Comics, and he was so done with really American comics, and he was so done with the movie business and, and having felt, you know, shit on, that he said, look, you know, I'm not going to take any of the money, give the money to the artists that I worked with on these original, on these original comics, give it to David Lloyd, mm-hmm. give it to Dave Gibbons, you know. Uh, if they ever do Marvel man, I guess, give it to, was it Gary Leach?
0: Yeah. Gary Leach, Alan Davis. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Give it, give give it to Gary Leach and Alan Davis, you know? So he's, he's principled in the same way that Ali was. Ali gave up his crown, you know, based on his principles. So to me, that's, that's kind of how you would make the comparison. How would you like, how would you try to sum him up as the greatest of all time? What, what has he done to earn that title in your, in your mind? Just, you know, and this is off the top.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Um, He's the GOAT quite simply because he is a writer foremost. Just, you know, he can put his touch to anything, any IP, any character, be it original or something that is a corporate character and still find a way to make it interesting. You know, I mentioned at the top of the episode, you know, when I was coming into comics, you know, in the uh, early 90s, that was during a period where he was starting to write stuff, you know, for a couple of the image guys like Todd McFarlane. And then a few years later for Jim Lee with at uh, Wildstorm, you know, and even those characters who seemingly, even though I loved them at the time, looking back (laughs) upon reflection, They were kind of ciphers in a way, you know, he came in and particularly for Wildcats, he established a whole continuity, you know, for them. And he was able to find the essence of whatever um, character that he took on and, you know, somehow create a whole mythology for it. And it was up to the copyright holders or whoever owned that character after he was done if they wanted to do something with that, and a lot of times if they were smart, they would keep on to that continuity that he established. Unfortunately, Wildstorm did not. Like he came on and he did about 12 issues and turned Wildcats into like this epic saga. You know what I'm saying? And what did they do after he was done with Wildcats? Ah, oh, gee, thanks. Appreciate it. Never touch that again never did anything else with that story, which is which is a damn shame, you know? Mm-hmm. He's one of those creators to where he has that touch. He has it. Whatever story that you read from him, it's unmistakably Alan Moore, you know what I'm saying? And it's, there are very few people that you can say that about. Now, you can say that they touched a certain story for sure, but to one where you're just like, you're guaranteed at least once or twice reading a certain issue by Alan Moore to just kind of have one of those moments where you're reading and you come across a turn of phrase you got to put the book down for a second and just be like yeah oh, <laughs> you know you know how like you might be listening to, like, some some rap song, right? And, yes. Uh,
1: I was I was just about to make that comparison. Yeah. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> like, you listen to a verse by three stacks, right? And it come across your ear. You're like, oh, shit. Hold on, hold on. And you, you got to stop it and rewind that, you know what I mean, just to hear it again and, and again and again, just to, like, take it all in. That's how it is with Alan Moore. You know, it's always a turn of phrase or when you get to the conclusion of a story, you know, it's just like, damn, he did that. Yes. Yes. And you felt like you, you're you leaving with something more than you had before you started reading it. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I same thing with um, that Superman story from the uh, Superman Annual.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, for the man who has everything.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Now, I read that after I saw the uh animated adaptation that Bruce Tim and, and and Warner Brothers did.
0: Ah, okay. Okay.
1: I saw that I saw it first in in the in the in the animated version in the 90s. It was like, you know, and I'm watching it and I'm like, "God, damn." <laughs> 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 you know, cuz it it was so moving and you know, this is someone who as a kid, you know, and I've I've, you know, I've re- recounted this, you know, many times on the show, but you know, I've devoured tons and tons of Superman, you know, you know every Kurt Swan story ever, you know, just every Superman, all of it. So, you know, to surprise me with a Superman story was pretty m- much a feat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yet, you know, here and again, this is someone who's thinking about character, who's thinking about the character, the limitations of the character. Well, he's Superman. He can do anything, but he has limitations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: He has limitations. What are those? And those things are just as interesting as you know the laser beams coming out of his eyes and flying and super strength and you know and 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 all you know cold super cold breath you know and all yeah. these other you know dopey <laughs> things that we love about Superman. Yeah. So for for sure that's you know that's that's definitely it for me. I didn't read you know the Wildcats and Spawn although I was aware of it. No, I, I take that back. I think I did read one issue, one or two issues of uh, Jim Lee's Wildcats, He's th- for the year he did it. He did it for about a year, right? Uh,
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do I do re- remember reading some of it. And oddly enough, you know, Moore has been quoted as saying that when he started writing that stuff, and Spawn probably too, mm-hmm. he said he wanted to write stories for a very sophisticated 13 or 15-year-old.
0: Well, I can tell you that he hit the mark. He absolutely <laughs> did. Yes. yes. By experience, yes. Yes, he <laughs>
1: He, he, and, 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 and not punching down while doing it. You know what I mean? Like not stooping, you know, to the audience per se, but just saying, okay, you know, what would be interesting to somebody who has, you know, you know, a 13 or 15 year old, let's say a boy like yourself, you know, with all this testosterone raging through your body and, you know, and, and, you know, you're turned on by the four color goodness of, you know, Spawn and Wildcats and, you know, and, uh. Uh, Gen thirteen and you know and and Savage Dragon you know whatever
0: yeah yeah
1: you know that these these are the things that that you're interested in but but I agree with you man I think that his his handling of of character and 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 the writing and the literacy of it I was I was truly blown away by uh, you know his run on Swamp Thing mm-hmm. because again you know he's thinking about this as okay no this isn't a man. Who thinks he's a plant this is a plant who thinks he's a man
0: correct yes
1: and it totally turns the character on its head and it totally opens you up as the reader to okay wait a minute because you know everything in uh everything in comics had always been this outside thing changes this human being but they're still a human being Mm -hmm. uh and they still have their goodness and their morality and their ethics and their you know their you know, all of that, their stand uprightness or whatever, they still have all of those things intact. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that he's not a human anymore, how does that change him? How does that change his engagement with the world? How does that change the character of his affection for, uh, what was the woman's, his wife's name?
0: Uh, Abby. I think it was Abby. Abby, Abby yeah, Abby guy, you know, yeah, for yeah. Abby.
1: Yeah, you know, and and other human beings. So anyway, it was just fascinating and, and I remember as a 16, no, not 16, I was probably 18. Okay. And I remember going to Titans down off of Riverdale Road. Yes, sir. And Pat, you know, this was the first Titans, the only Titans at the time. And Pat said, man, you got to read this Swamp Thing. And I'm like, Swamp Thing? <laughs> <laughs> you mean that Bernie rice enjoy What?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was
1: not, man, I hadn't messed with Swamp Thing since rice and den wing Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and it was fire, you yeah. know. But uh, And I believe, of course, this was after the uh, the, the really terrible Swamp Thing movie with Adrian Barbeau. Hey, I like
0: that joke, but go ahead.
1: Hey, man, all right, man.
0: (laughs) For obvious reasons, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, man, hey, man, it's Adrian Barbeau, yo. (laughs) You still have some leftover escape from New York in you. (laughs) But I remember him saying, he was like, yeah, he says, you know, see that? He says, you know, he's growing sweet potatoes on his skin and I'm like what you know and and then you find out some of it is you know it's it's hallucinogenic it's like you know it's like peyote or lsd or some some kind of a natural mushroom yeah you know that you know people eat it and they you know and they get a psychedelic trip off of it and I'm like wow you know so uh and i don't I have no like no idea how long he actually worked on a swamp thing I can't remember do you know
0: yeah yeah he worked on it from uh issue number twenty which was I believe in 1982 yeah, because it came out shortly around the time of, um, well, right after um, the Swamp Thing movie. So that would have been 82. And he worked on it to about issue number 64, thereabouts. So you're talking maybe about four years? Okay. You know, a little bit over four or five years?
1: Yeah. And that's got to be his longest run on pretty much any, any one thing, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, so, you know, after Swamp Thing and then... Uh, just prior to Watchmen was when I realized this was the same guy who wrote Marvel Man and wrote V for Vendetta. Mm, mm. And I was a big Marvel Man fan, again, thanks to Don Hilsman, you know, and I was just like, you know, again, you know, and, and he did the same thing on Marvel Man that he kind of did with Watchmen. He took these, you know, in Watchmen he took like, you know, kind of Golden Age, Bronze Age characters. Well, By the time they got to Charlton, they were Bronze Age, essentially. mm mm-hmm. And then just like you said, created you know, Cyphers created analogs for these characters and, and Marvel man was kind of the same way. You know, it's this golden age, goofy golden age character created by what? McAngelo I think was the,
0: uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the cartoonist name and brought him into the modern era and did the same thing. He kind of did with Watchmen. It's like, okay, well what would happen if a super being actually truly existed? And I loved Marvel man. I loved warrior magazine. I loved all of those stories. Um, I just thought they were super interesting and, you know, and then the artwork is in black and white, which was the thing that I was I was really drawn to at the time. Mm, mm. You could have black and white magazines like, you know, the Star Lord oversized book or, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: you know, uh, Creepy and Eerie or, you know, just there were all, all kinds of examples of black and white comics. Star Reach, mm-hmm. um, you know, back in the 80s. But I loved it. And so I, that's when I kind of put two and two together. OK, this is the same guy. So even then, by the time Watchmen came out, and I consider myself, and probably Dwight as well, and, and Don, and even our other friend uh, Mike Daly, I consider myself fortunate because I would catch the whatever-it-was Oglethorpe bus and ride from <laughs> East Point
0: uh, man. up
1: to Buckhead yeah. to the Peachtree Battle Shopping Center uh-huh. and go to Oxford. And every month or however frequently it was coming out, I guess it was monthly— And by the next issue of Watchmen, so in real time, we saw, you know, this thing that we'd never seen before, this this epic odyssey that we had never experienced before in American comics,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: month to month, come out in real time, and have a sense that shit was changing. The game was changing. Yeah. You know, um... But uh, when no when did you get to Watchmen? I know we've covered this as well on probably on our Watchmen episode. But when did you get to Watchmen, man?
0: Yeah, I got to it. Um, I'd say probably. Well, I I know that at first. Well, you read, said you were a teenager. Are you f- like fifteen? Yeah, I tried. To f- I first tried to read it when I was fifteen, I was like, man, no, nah, no. Nah. But it really didn't hit me until like I was about eighteen or nineteen. You know, like 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 you intimated, you know, after I'd read more comics in a wider expanse of material to where it's like, okay, and and probably matured a little bit as far as like my taste as well, that I was like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's also one of those things to where. When you read some of the pieces of the script that Moore provided to, you know, Dave Gibbons, you know, um, Alan Moore's scripts are legendary for their thickness and size, you know, because he's very descriptive in terms of what he wants. And within each panel, but you will hear every artist say, you know, Alan is very descriptive. He gives you these thick scripts, but they never feel overbearing. He feels like he's giving you enough description so that you can have a vision in your head to get down onto the paper, but still have yourself come through, you know, with it. And he's not really asking for anything that's impossible, even though you know the product that comes out is just like, what kind of mind would this come from? I mean, this is glorious, this is fantastic, and that's no hyperbole. It really is not. Yeah. When you're reading Watchmen. And you're just like, man, not only is this scripted so perfectly, but it takes a certain caliber of artist to interpret that scripting and to come out with the graphic representation of it to match the gloriousness of that scripting. And both of those things together just equals something that's just unforgettable. You know what I'm saying? Like, God, fearful symmetry? who would who would even attempt that today right and, right. and have it make sense not be a yeah. gimmick the way he did it it wasn't a gimmick like yes, yeah, a part of the storytelling you know just just and, and then the the way that the story itself kind of weaves back on itself but then comes back to the present and it all makes sense you know what I mean it's just it's just a thing of sheer beauty seriously yeah yeah. Yeah, I think you called it the Colossus of Rhodes, man. Yes, it is. It stands astride. <laughs> it, it, Like I told you um, when we were texting back and forth beforehand, you know, Moore kind of stands astride of, you know, the literate part of comics, you know, and the graphic storytelling of comics. And somehow he's able to blend those two worlds, you know, very seamlessly to give you just this unforgettable experience for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're right, man. You're right. Um, the thing about, like, I guess Watchmen and really Marvel Man, uh, and obviously both of those works were kind of birthed out of, you know, his kind of growing up under Thatcherism and and whatever that was for, you know, for for people living in in Britain. Yeah. Um. You know, in that time, clearly the forerunner to what he was doing with the deconstruction of the superhero or examining it through a completely different lens than we had seen in the previous, you know, 25 years or so, you know, of the golden age of Marvel. And really, you know, comics becoming, you know, that second wave, that second guard where fans of Julie Schwartz and fans of, you know, um, Carmine Infantino and Dick Giordano were starting to make comics. Fans of, excuse me, fans of Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. And fans of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were coming into comics and making comics. But Stan and, and, and Jack and, and Steve Ditko, but let's say Stan really, mm-hmm. he really was the originator of this idea of, okay, the superhero is, is a real person, you know, behind the mask, and that person probably has problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Spider-Man, he's a nerd at school, he's getting picked on, you know, his parents are dead. Uh, he lives with his, you know, with his senior age, aunt and uncle. He can't get the girl, although he liked to get the girl and he's never cool. Mm, mm -hmm. But deep down in his heart though, he is still a good person. Fantastic four, you know, they're kind of this, this kind of, uh, kind of a weird foster family that's kind of jammed together under these circumstances. They don't always get along. Yeah. Um, you know, the X-Men, you know, it's like, you know, uh, they're outcasts. They're almost it's almost like an allegory for being, you know, for being a minority or for you know being, sure. a, being gay or something like that. You know, all these other things, they have problems, but they're all at their hearts. Good people. And it was more who came along and said, what if at their core they weren't good people? Yeah. What if some of them really were terribly selfish or some of them were violent or some of them were greedy or some of them were megalomaniacal in, and not in the mustache twisting way
0: right right you know one
1: right. of some of them were egomaniacs what if some of them had sexual proclivities that interfered with them trying to go out and be, and be this do-gooder mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know all these kinds of things but i wanted to read something from a uh an essay that moore wrote back in
0: 1983 okay have you ever read it no what what's the title of it
1: if I'm not mistaken, it was called Stan Lee. Don't believe the hype. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: a, a friendly character assassination. Oh, something wow. like that.
0: Okay, something okay.
1: like that. But it's it's an excerpt from it, and he's talking about Stan Lee and talking about the influence that Stan Lee had on comics. You know, obviously preceding him and 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 the people that he collaborated with. And this was in 1983, so this is three years before Watchmen. Probably right in the heart of Swamp Thing hmm. So he says this is a quote, he says, uh, as Marvel began to grow into a bigger and bigger concern, Lee seemed to find most of his time taken up in the day to day editorial decisions implicit in such a large enterprise and less and less time available for actual writing. Hmm. Other writers began to appear. Some of them, like Roy Thomas, were very competent indeed. Others were less so. The one thing that all of these newer writers had in common was that they had, by and large, cut their teeth upon the writing of Stan Lee. This was good in so much as it lent a pleasing continuity to the books. Roy Thomas following Stan Lee with a style very much like Lee's own, but bad in that we were getting a kind of Stan Lee once removed situation. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a watering down process. And he continues on. He says, eventually writers began to appear who had cut their teeth upon Roy Thomas. And the original idea was diluted still further. Writers who had less idea about plotting and characterization than a common earthworm came to believe that all one needed to write a good solid Stanley type story was to have Doctor Doom or Galactus turn up and the heroes to spend a couple of obligatory frames arguing
0: amongst themselves. Yes, yeah, yeah, I can't argue with that, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, you know, Moore essentially changes the game in 86 with Watchmen. And then we have, you know, The Dark Knight Returns comes out, mm-hmm. and after that, you know, we have Batman Year One, and so everything is changing, and what's funny is, is those two works have influenced comics f- like since.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh. To, it's in some ways, particularly in the case of Dark Knight Returns, uh, to is detriment, you know what I'm saying? But, yeah, um... Just Watchmen, man. I, Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns; those are the twin, twin catalysts for this what you would call like this grim and gritty era. You know what I'm saying? Like the challenge became, you know, it. It's like more, you know, he, you know, established that hey, these characters, you know, actually may have feet of clay. Their reaction to gaining these powers or going about doing their thing may actually be closer to what you know a, a normal person would have with all the uh, with like you say with all the proclivities and you know um, things that a normal person would have you know coming into a circumstance like that and you see in its wake of it and Dark Knight Returns that you know it's the same thing as he described in that essay from 83. You know, you have these writers who are the acolytes of those two those two twin works Mm -hmm. and then you have writers a decade later who are acolytes of that. So it's like that whole cycle again of, okay, here you have a shift in paradigm in the medium. Do you have acolytes of that shift? And then you have acolytes of the shift of the shift. And it just becomes like, where's the next paradigm shift? You know what I'm saying? And it's like with more, it just kind of stops right there and it shouldn't, But for a lot of people, it seems to, you know what I mean?
1: That's kind of that was kind of what I was getting at when I saw this. I was like, okay, well, the same thing obviously happened to he and Frank Miller, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where the things that they created, you know, there was a generation that was influenced by that. And some of them were peers. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And then there was a generation after that that were influenced by that previous generation. And then now we maybe get to modern day to today. And so it's everything is watered down. And w- there are examples of that in, in every medium. You know, there are I'm sure there are bargain basement, you know, Clancy's out there and in the, in the novel writing you know, world. And,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, bargain basement, you know, uh, Grisham's and uh, bargain basement, uh, you know, whomevers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it definitely happens in film. You know, Tarantino comes along and everybody wants to do fast-talking gangsters who, you know, who know a lot about pop culture and who make references that nobody understands. Um, we even talked about that a little bit on the uh, the episode of, uh, that we recorded uh, about Raiders of the Lost Ark, about, you know, the acolytes of Spielberg, the Spielberg Juniors, and then Spielberg <laughs> Junior Juniors. <you> know?
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: So, So then you get, like, even now, even without directly referencing it, so much of this golden age of television and, and movies that we're experiencing and seeing now, so much of it still goes back to Alan Moore, which is kind of gets back to the whole thing of, of the greatest and how much impact this one has and even impact outside of their particular field. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get the boys. You don't get Jupiter's legacy. Mm-hmm. You don't get a lot of the science fiction shows that we watch. Um, you don't get uh, Marvel's interpretation of Cloak and Dagger to a certain extent. The TV series they did, kind of without you know, without Watchmen. You know, you don't get the Heroes TV show from fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Umbrella Academy, the the uh, DC's Teen Titans TV show. I mean, there's just tons, tons of examples of uh, you know, of TV and and, and films that are reflecting that back to us. You know, 35, 40 years later.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. and um anyway i think it's um it's a testament to to how staggeringly good you know moore's work has been um and then at the same time you know how like you said you know no one took the cue of okay let me come up with an original idea it it just becomes a playoff of what's been done before and uh and let's just you know let's just ride this thing until basically until the wheels fall off
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, while I'm thinking about it, I'm glad you brought up that point, um, Swizz, because there's one work also that I think people keep going back to. And we all know how much DC's canon has evolved and rebooted and rebooted and rebooted over the years, like four or five damn reboots. Right. 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 You know what's remained constant throughout all those reboots since 1988? The one thing that's remained constant, and again, this is to its detriment, because it makes no sense why this is still a thing. Batman the Killing Joke, okay? And the mm-hmm. one thing within Batman the Killing Joke, the shooting of Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. Joker, okay? Okay. You probably know as well as I do far too many examples where, and at this point, I would almost call it lazy writing. You know, I can I can distinctly remember there was an issue of um, they had done a reboot of Brave and Bold like back in the late two thousands, mm-hmm. and um, it was like, oh man, you know, there's this one issue of Brave and Bold that was getting all this acclaim and everything, right? And it starred Batgirl in that issue. So I already had my eye open like, they better not. They better not. No. 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 And what happened was was that somehow um, if I remember the story correctly Batgirl and whoever was the guest star with her in that particular issue, somehow they had the opportunity to go back and try to change something in the continuity. You know what I'm saying? In the past or whatnot. In her past. And so the big reveal in all of this is there's this two page spread of, you know, if you remember the scene from The Killing Joke, where Joker shows up at Barbara Gordon's apartment at the front door, has this revolver and shoots her. Right. And he's wearing like this Hawaiian shirt, you know, like he's going on a vacation. You know Right. That was the big reveal in that issue. Like, oh, this two page spread of close up of him wearing the wearing that same garb shooting whatever version of Barbara Gordon it was. And I was like, come on. You mean to tell me the acclaim was just for that? And the other thing, too, is like, that's never changed. It's like D.C. is almost mandated unofficially or not. You cannot change this. You cannot change Barbara Gordon getting shot by the Joker in this exact circumstance, even still today, within this continuity, whatever continuity it is, you know, that has not changed. And I think part of it is a testament to how powerful that story was. It's a great Batman story, obviously, but it's also one of those things to where, again, acolytes of acolytes of acolytes of of more in that storytelling. That's all they took from it you know it's an easy shock moment to put that in your story and somehow say oh wow isn't this brilliant you know and it's like no 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 you you're 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 diluting the impact that it originally had in that original you know uh presentation you know what i mean you know i always wondered why did they
1: continue that on and why did they like it was a bummer for me. It's like, "Oh, Barbara Gordon's now she's Oracle. Now she's in a wheelchair." It's like, "Yeah, what? Give her some bionic shit so she can walk." What are you doing?
0: Right, right.
1: But I don't know. I I suppose so, man. And, and you know, and, and the thing is, is you know, you know, more as a writer, Frank Miller's a writer. You know, they did take what had gone before them and try to build upon it. They were standing on the shoulders of giants. Oh yeah, but. You know, now the, the inverse has happened, like you're saying, with, you know, the Acolytes of the Acolytes and in, in, of the Acolytes. Um, there's a guy named uh, John R. Parker. He wrote a, a, a piece for Comics Alliance back in uh, 2015. Okay. And uh, John, his, one of the things he said was, he says that when writing all of his beloved works in a five-year period, fairly early in his career, Moore wasn't attempting to capitalize on the latest trends.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: saved that for his time. With image in the nineties. He was consciously experimenting, throwing out the rule book. It must have come as a great disappointment to the anarchist then that an impression of his approach became the rule book.
0: Oh yeah. That, that's a good one. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. So um let me ask you this, man, because I mean we did we didn't really talk about the killing joke earlier in our in our conversation. Was that something that when you got to it you were like oh this this has the greatness to it was that something that that that's that sat with you in that
0: way oh yeah absolutely and i think probably because it's a bit more approachable than watchmen or um v for vendetta in that it has batman in it you know um for for part of it you know what i mean <laughs> so initially that's what got <laughs> that's what got me i mean even from that opening page you know with the grid You know, of, like, Batman coming to Arkham in the rain. You know, the Batmobile parks. He comes in. Wordless. Now, this is totally wordless now. And, you know, Commissioner Gordon hands his coffee off to, you know, the uh, police officer, you know, whomever standing next to him. And, you know, without a word. Was it Bullock?
1: It wasn't Bullock?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not not that time, yo. It was some beat cop, you know what I mean? And they just go in together, you know. And just the little things once he goes inside and into the story. And and again, it takes someone with an equally brilliant artistic sense to interpret what more is scripting. You cannot ask for that, you know, anymore, you know, in inside of someone other than like, you know, Brian Ballin, for sure. I mean, that's brilliant. That's one of his that's truly a feather in his cap. You know, that's a masterwork right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I read it, it definitely hit me. It was like, wow, this is this is I hate to say realistic, but we're talking about Batman. But to my adolescent mind, this was a realistic interpretation of Batman. It wasn't Brave and the Bold, it wasn't Jim Aparo, it was not <laughs> whatever you want to name. It was like, okay, this this has the, the man, this is just crazy. And it was a Joker origin story as well. You know what I mean? Like it had everything wrapped up in it to where subsequent versions of the character have referred back to it, you know. Um the killing joke spawned a lot of things that are present now in continuity. You know, how this current Joker got, you know, to be who he is. Obviously the aforementioned shooting of Barbara Gordon Batgirl. And I think that antagonistic relationship, obviously between Batman and the Joker in terms of like, see, we can't exist. We can't exist without each other, you know? We're two sides of the same coin, you know? And 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 there's that joke I did not get it as a kid when I read it, and even now as an adult, <laughs> I think it's just so absurdist. You know, where he's telling a joke about, you know, to Batman about, you know, shining a flashlight and someone's trying to walk across it or something with the beam or night, and Batman, he kind of just breaks, breaks, you know, his his stoic character and just kind of chuckles. Hm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hm. and they both kind of chuckle for a bit, and. I love the way it ends. It ends how it began. You're looking at the puddles, right? The rain making puddles. Right. You see the yeah. headlights of the Batmobile after you know he carts Joker away and the lights of the Batmobile disappear and we're ended with exactly how the first panel is drops of rain making puddles. Oh just great, man. Just oh yeah. Just beautiful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that perfect lyrical ending, you know, where it swoops back around, and uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely, man. And that was one that uh, certainly hasn't been uh, adapted for a live action Batman movie, but it was it, it was actually adapted for an animated movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out several years ago. And I I kind of wanted to conclude the conversation in terms of Moore's greatness, and you know, and talk and the comparison to Muhammad Ali, in, in terms of you know his you know, his stance, you know, his, his pride, his, you know, his, his ethical stance on, uh you know, in his dealings with DC, you know, post uh, Watchmen and, um and, and kind of what they did to him and Dave Gibbons, but also, and I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to think when I first became aware of it, but I guess, was the first adapted thing, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen?
0: Hmm, actually, actually, no, no. Well, the one, that, that made it to screen yes yes but i know that watchman had been optioned almost as soon as it finished even as early as 1987 because there was supposed to be something that terry gilliam was supposed to do an adaptation that didn't get but so far but yeah as far as like an adaptation that was made to the screen yeah it would be league of extraordinary gentlemen
1: right which was a dumpster fire it was awful
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes yes
1: it was absolutely awful but I remember seeing that, and I was like, "God, this is a terrible movie." And I didn't realize that um, that it was a comic uh, at the time because I, I wasn't reading a ton of comics at the time. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, my 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 uh, my connection to the comic world was 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 a little bit uh, 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 thin at the time. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, this was based on a comic." And I remember I went and bought the graphic, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is great!" Yes. <laughs> and then you again realize. Part of the reason why he was so mad is like, okay, you know, this this thing turned into a piece of shit. But then also, uh, and then after that, you know, you have V for Vendetta, I guess. Mm. And then after that, you have From Hell. Mm. And then eventually you get to HBO's Watchmen TV show.
0: Now, 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 hold on. Don't skip over Zack Snyder's attempt at Watchmen, because. Mm. Oh, yeah, I forgot about it.
1: I was trying to forget
0: about that. <laughs> 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 I should have let sleeping dogs lie, dog. Damn.
1: They did that, yo? They did. Zack Snyder did that for real? <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just for me to take a moment to just shit on Zack Snyder. I watched Army of the Dead.
0: Oh, no. Oh, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no.
1: It's just like Watchmen. It's like, okay, the first three, four, five minutes is actually kind of entertaining because it's a montage of people killing zombies over a soundtrack. Yeah. But then he he's he messes it up in the same way that he did in Watchmen. How are you going to do a Watchmen movie? Mm-hmm. And the big climactic uh 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 final scene in Antarctica or whatever at uh Ozymandias's his hideout, his lair. Yeah. You play all along the
0: watchtower. Like on the nose like mm. And
1: so <laughs> and, and so in Army of the Dead uh-huh they uh they play this montage against uh, leaving Las Vegas.
0: Oh brother.
1: And and Viva Viva Las Vegas and all, all this all this obvious shit where I'm just like, oh my God, you know. He's just not a deep guy, yo. That's probably the kindest thing I can say about him. He's just not a deep guy. <laughs> but when is the first time that you became aware, like in a public, you know, uh Wizard magazine sense, that Alan Moore was like, Okay, I don't want anything to do with these movies. Take my name off these movies. I don't want any money from these movies. You can give all the money that you were going to give me. You can give it to the artists who I worked on, on, on these books with. But I don't want anything from me I'll have no parts of it. I'm done. When was the first time you, you th- that you can recall being aware that he was taking
0: that hard a stance? I can recall um, I was still working at the comic shop then. So this would have been like 2004, 2005. And... Um I think Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen had come out by then, by at least 05 or whatnot. And there were articles in in just, you know, not just Wizard, but just in comics news, period, about, oh, man, you know, um, Alan Moore is upset as fuck over this movie. Like, he is just like, (laughs) what the hell? Like, and then you eventually saw he actually went to court. You know, over this and just all this stuff is building up. You know what I'm saying? And I think it's around that time that people started, you know, really ascribing to him the trait of, well, he's just being a grump. Any normal person would have just took the money and ran. You know what I'm saying? You could right, right. just option whatever it is. I don't care. Just give me the option money. But like you said, he's a man of principle. You know what I'm saying? He's like, damn, take my name off of it or whatever. But, you know, go ahead and pass that money along to, you know, the co-creator who, you know, really came up with the visuals for this. You know what I mean? And I I think in some ways, although in others, you know, um, he was kind of um, undeserving, you know, of that, you know. And it just became almost. It started to become like a, a joke. It started almost <laughs> to become like a Rob Liefeld type joke. Like I, you must I was your... just
1: thinking the same thing. It's almost like if you wanted to, if you needed a punching bag, I throw Rob Liefeld in. If you want to talk about somebody being grumpy and 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 have and being wrongheaded about you know their ethical stance or whatever, you throw Alan Moore's name in there.
0: You're exactly right. Yes. Yeah, so that almost became just the the joke de jour, if you will, to say, "Oh man, stop being grumpy like Alan Moore, Meg. Shut the hell up, you know that type of thing." And it's just like, no, nah, man, you you don't hear about people within the creative field doing that a lot. Most people, most, and I would say most rational people would just say, "Well, they're paying me a bunch of money. I'll just take it and run. Damn the consequences. Who cares?" But it's somebody like him who really cares about, you know, not just that product itself, but there is a creative legacy that that one leaves behind when they create a body of work like that. And to have, even though it's an adaptation of that particular chapter in your body of work made, and it's not of the best quality, that says something. You know what I mean? And it says something, whether it's unfair or not, you know, fair or not, it still says something. It's almost like posterity would have it as a finger pointing back to you that you actually optioned them and let them do that shit. Right. That's what it is posterity will point back at you and say you you're the one who who gave him the option in the first damn place it's your fault
1: (laughs) yeah 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 and 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 one could probably say hey look you know alan moore you knew about harlan ellison's thing about pay the writer and and you know and what kind of trouble he had you know working you know in entertainment and having things be adapted although you know harlan ellison had tons of things yeah yeah uh you know adapted and and um and move over into other mediums but at the same time you just can't argue with that yo it's like uh it's like mace walking away from from bad boy yo and at the height of, mm. of of shiny suitness yo
0: <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean
1: all the money in the world all the popularity all the all the champagne all of the all of the the the, the you know he's pushing the best whips he's staying in the finest hotels he, you know, there's there's no there's no super fine chick he hasn't smashed. And he walks away from all of that.
0: Because someone right wasn't right. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, something wasn't right. This isn't for me, you know. And and so you really do have to acknowledge it. I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, it was probably after the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen when I found out that he was, you know, he's literally disowning you know, those films and and didn't want to have any parts of it. And at the time, I remember thinking, man, come on. Right. Like you said, just get paid, dog. But when you think about it, and you do look back, again, his his comic DB, his CV remains peerless.
0: Yeah. Come on now. Peerless. Yeah, yo. Come on, man. Like, he was the shit before he even got to the shores of America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, and then just took it up a notch. So Heidi McDonald, the writer and uh, editor over at The Beat, she had a thing that she wrote about Moore. She said, is Moore a high-maintenance creator? Absolutely. But you'll note that the main reason Diane Nelson, DC's current president, this is how many years ago this was, was given reign over the company is because she was so good at handling another very high-maintenance creator, J.K. Rowling.
0: Mm. Would
1: Would Warner Brothers treat J.K. Rowling the way DC treated Moore? I don't think so.
0: Hell no. I don't think so. Mm-mm. And and that's a and that's a and that's a damn shame because to me, in terms of their respective impacts upon popular culture, it's very easy to say, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling. Oh man, you know, with just those books, you know, what I'm saying she made a huge impact. But I would I would say that Moore is the equal of that in many ways, you know, as well as far as his impact. You know what I'm saying? Not just in comics, but even outside of comics, as you intimated. You know what I'm saying? But it's messed up that, yeah, they wouldn't treat them the same. In fact, they did Alan Moore dirty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and really, if you go back to the whole thing with DC and Watchmen and License, and it'll re- the rights will revert back to you. That's really that was really the beginning of the end in terms of him realizing that. You know, these bigger, larger entities, publishers and, and, and movie studios, etc. I mean, they're, they're, they're just going to fuck you if they can.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and oddly enough, you know, we had an episode here recently where we were talking about, you know, paying Brubaker and Epting, you know, uh, for their contribution to the, you know, to the Winter Soldier and and, and all that that character has become on, on television and on uh, and on the big screen. Mm hmm. And I found a quote from Ed Brubaker talking about uh, and this is probably I, I should have gotten uh, annotated the year. But I think this was around the time that they were doing the um, the uh, the relaunch Watchmen comics with, you know, Adam Hughes and, and Darwin Cook and Jay Lee and, you know, all those folks.
0: Oh, before Watchmen. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And, and Brubaker said this. Mm-hmm. The main problem I have with this whole thing is that the summer Watchmen was announced, talking about the comic, was the same summer that pros and fans rallied around Jack Kirby. It was the beginning of the Creator Bill of Rights and many other things. In that summer, DC touted Watchmen as a victory for creators' rights. Mm. They proclaimed that the creators would own it and have control and that this was a new era, not like what happened to Siegel and Schuster, to Kirby, to countless comic creators that came before. They were saying DC was better than the other publishers by giving this deal to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Now it turns out, still reading, uh, quoting uh, Brubaker here, now it turns out that's not the case, and it's just like all the others that came before, and they're acting like they never said that.
0: Right, yeah.
1: I don't care what's in the contract. I don't have any animosity for my friends and peers working on those books. And again, I'm presuming he's talking about the, uh, the Watchmen... Uh, series that came out uh here recently in the last i think seven to ten years yeah he says and i totally understand why dc is doing it and that they have the right to but i was there when they announced it and i remember how they talked about it then and say whatever you want about marvel and kirby etc but no one ever held up the avengers as a victory for creators rights right so he's pointing out the hypocrisy of them saying, hey, we're gonna do this this great thing. And then when they realized that it was, it's not even a great thing. This is like a world-changing thing. Now we gotta keep that for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And you know, and even over the course of, you know, um after all of that happened, you know, once some um, Alan Moore was working with Jim Lee over at Wildstorm and it was like that ex- inexorable pulls back towards DC that he did not want. You know, because there were rumors happening and they were finally confirmed when Jim Lee came out and said, yeah, I've sold Wildstorm to D.C. And Alan Moore had started creating stuff for Wildstorm. And now that means that stuff is being subsumed back into the very company that he did not want to do business with. You know what I'm saying? And now all that stuff. Yeah. All all those America's best comics? Yep, yep. All of those are now DC comics property. Damn. That's just fucked up. <laughs> <It> is, <yo. laughs> that's the it best is. way I can say it. That's a bullshit. Damn. And I think
1: I think Jim Lee went over, he flew over to England to talk with more directly and to try to tell him, hey, look, you know, you know, you won't have to interact with them at all, and blah, 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 and so on and so forth, and this, that, and the third. And basically. The only reason Alan Moore went forward with America's Best Comics was because there were so many other collaborators that he was working with that had already committed to it. If he abandoned it and said no go, it would affect them in a negative way.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: again, you know, the principle of, hey, you know, I don't want to I don't want to mess this up for you guys. You know, your my fight is not your fight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he went ahead and did it anyway. So again... You speak to the, you know, his principles. You speak to his ethics. You speak to, you speak to what kind of a stand-up guy he is, and, and again, I still make the comparison back to, you know, Muhammad Ali. You know, you and I were in our text exchange in preparation to to talk about uh, more as the goat. You know, I was talking to you and I was asking you about some of the uh, some of the acolytes and some of the peers really mm, mm-hmm. that came along. You know, right around the time he was he was working. On um, Swamp so Thing, and then you know into Watchmen, and then into other things, and then some of the people who came after that, and we we named a few names, um, but I wanted to I wanted to get your take, you know, just some of the people that you would consider to be, I call them the sons of Alan Moore.
0: <laughs> that you know? sounds like an old John Wayne Western. <laughs> the Sons of Alan Moore Sunday on TBS <laughs> on TBS. <laughs> But but yeah man (laughs) but yeah man Uh, number one for me would be Grant Morrison you know Uh, actually I'm 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 gonna say a tie for number one would be Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman you know okay because with Gaiman you have that literary side of more you know the love of language and prose that they put into you know their comics work you know what i'm saying and somehow being able to get you know top flight artists who are able to interpret interpret that into these you know great you know comic book stories and i say grant morrison is because morrison you know uh, While well, he can do some of that, you know, same type of uh, literary bent that Guyman does, you know, I think Morrison mm-hmm. represents kind of that more populist bent of more, you know, the stuff with taking like established IPs and turning them on their ear and somehow getting you to think differently about those characters, like finding kernels within the characterization That haven't been exploited or rather haven't been shown yet or showcased to make you think, wow, why hasn't anyone thought about that before with that character? Now I see the character in a whole new light, you know, and being able to do something with the character. So perhaps not totally revolutionary, but in such a popular manner that it spots it spotlights that character and gives new life to it. And so, thus, other creators following in his wake are like, okay, we're going to take what he did and maybe build upon it, maybe not, but at least he's put that possibility out there. And so, I think Morrison represents that as well. You know, so, so it's those two sides of Moore that you know are seemingly represented, perhaps, in those two creators, those two writers, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about like Peter Milligan and. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think you even mentioned you, you, you talked Warren Ellis and Garth Ennis a, l- a little bit too. Sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as far as that goes, um, let's end it on 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 a fun note, man.
0: Okay. All right.
1: I, I just thought about this while we were talking. So, you know, Alan Moore came along in the eighties, mm. and really the like the mid eighties, and then moving forward. So there are. A generation of artists who worked in comics prior to that, that he never got to collaborate with. So I was trying to think, like in a fun way. Okay, what if Marvel Man was being done at an earlier time in the '70s or the '60s? <laughs> what if Steve Ditko drew
0: drew Marvel Man? Man, that man, that shit would be mind blowing. That Woo! man, bruh. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> bruh <laughs> sir what if
1: uh somebody like neil adams actually drew watch oh man are you kidding man shoot man uh what if bernie wrightson did v for vendetta
0: <laughs> man bruh 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 i know it's it's I know over it's, yeah what if bernie wrightson did the swamp thing that alan moore wrote Man, oh, oh, ooh,
1: oh,
0: brother, bro. Okay,
1: okay. Here would be the better one then. Okay, Bernie Wrightson does the Swamp Thing. Alex Toth does V for Vendetta.
0: Ooh, ooh, boy, yo. I'm in here doing.
1: I'm in here doing the church dance, yo. <laughs> do 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 <laughs> Sir, I'm
0: about to get slain in the Holy Ghost, bro, <laughs> <laughs> bro. I mean, God, the possibilities, just man. And, and you know, speaking to that, you know, he holds such prestige within the industry that you had people, even if it was an eight-page story, they would talk about, man, I got the chance to work on an Alan Moore story, you know. Like contemporary artists, you know, when he was still doing stuff, they're like, man, I can't believe I even it was just eight pages. But I got a chance to work on an Alan Moore script, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For him to, you know, have that type of prestige attached to his work and to be able to attract that in these top flight artists, you know, what I'm saying you could only imagine, you know, working with like those masters back in the past like that. The mind boggles, sir. The mind boggles, yo. Sir, I got, I got a couple more. All right.
1: I'm, I'm in my beautiful mind thing now, yo. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the numbers, yo. They, they coming
0: at you, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yo. And and, 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 as much as I adore Brian Boland. Okay. What if Jim Apparel did the killing joke?
0: Bro, oh <laughs> well. Man, my face ah. my face melting like oh. tote and Raiders, yo. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or 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 uh I'm
1: trying to think of something good for like uh uh the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, somebody Okay good from back in the day. Uh maybe mm. like a Carmine Infantino or
0: uh, mm. uh I'm trying to think. man you know, you know, you know who who would have been crazy, who would have been which would just been like this crazy dream dream world pairing. Yo, put somebody like a Jorge Safino with Alan Moore on something like that. Yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yo. I, I I feel that man I feel that joint like in the in the pit of my stomach man just like damn
1: what about what about starstruck heavy metal era Mike Caluda on Prometheus
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: you know or uh, I'm trying to think of somebody good for From Hell mm-hmm. somebody with a, a good horror been. we've already talked about Bernie Wrightson we already got him we already got him on Swamp Thing we keeping him on the old favorite somebody good for From
0: Hell. Ah, Richard Corbin. Man, that would have been crazy. Damn, <laughs> that woo, woo. Man, that that shit would have challenged Corbin like none other. You know, me. Yeah. I mean? yo. Yeah. That's crazy. That's man. That's just remarkable. I mean, and, and you know, the the common factor in all of this again is just that you already know that it's Alan Moore so you already know the script is like you know lock tight it's it's in there Yeah, (laughs) all you you gotta do is just hand hand the baby to to the babysitter like here take care of my baby you know what I'm saying you just gotta find the right. right babysitter to nurture that baby grow it into a into a healthy young child and watch it grow up and like ah that's what I'm talking about yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, <laughs> even to some extent, yo, you have to say, like, he gave it to the artists and all of those artists that he worked with Lloyd and Leach and um,
0: Gibbons and
1: uh, Gibbons and uh, and uh, Kevin O'Neill. Um, just all of them. They're all terrific artists. Really,
0: all of them. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: But he just basically said, okay, I'm giving it to you. All you got to do is just not mess it up.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: All, all you got to do is just not mess it up. And that's another testament to how powerful the works were. Think about how different all of those artists are, their approaches are, their sensibilities, you know, what they do well versus what they don't do well. And they all succeeded. It's almost like he's like Jordan where he makes Pippin better. He makes Rodman better just by his mere presence. You're on the team with me. You're going to rise to the occasion.
0: Yeah. It's crazy, man. Mmm. Mmm. Whew, man, bruh. Shh. Bruh, now I wanna now I wanna read all that shit all over all again. man. All them shits, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Fish and grits and all
1: them pimp shits, yo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson.